I am sitting here today with Tony Lewis at Frequency Winery. Tony has more than 13 years experience in marketing and promoting artists and artists and industries. And he helps with the creation, production, and marketing of wine and the winery experience. Um, Tony was the general manager of Vibrant Vine Vineyards, which is still owned and run by his family. Tony has an extensive background in audio and lighting engineering, and today he is running Frequency, which is a vineyard that also has a sound studio within it, which we are recording in right now. We're sitting in the sound studio. Uh, when people come to Frequency for a tasting, they're also given a demonstration of how sound waves can be used to sculpt solid matter into beautiful symmetrical designs, and I just saw a demonstration today. Uh, so when you come here for a wine tasting, you can see a demonstration like this, and it's super cool. So we're going to be talking about that today as well. So first of all, Tony, thank you for coming on the show today. Um, I know you're an extremely busy guy, and uh, with everything that you're doing, I really appreciate your time. So I wanted to give you a platform to tell us about your amazing place and your fascinating life. Maybe if you could take a couple of minutes and tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, how you ended up at Frequency. All right. Well, first of all, thank you so much because this, uh, yeah, this means a lot to us here at Frequency. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, for real. Um, yeah, so my name's Tony Lewis. I was born in California. My parents are Welsh immigrants. They came from Wales, um, I guess, and I might get it wrong, but I think 77 or 78. So they came over on a boat and uh, moved to Canada. And then uh, we moved down, or I wasn't born yet. I was born in 1980. So then they had me just outside of San Francisco, and that's where I was born. And I kind of grew up there for... Quite a while. Moved around a bit. Moved up to Lake Tahoe. That's where I got into music. Started my first band when I was like 14 or 15. Maybe started a little before that. But um, got got uh, music going. And uh, went through high school and whatnot up there playing music with my brothers in a band. Storytime was the band uh, that we had going. <laughs> and uh, went off to sound recording school down in Huntington Beach, California, Southern California. And moved around there a bunch. Uh, that's when we started like entrepreneurial activities where we'd rent out the school studio and uh, start recording bands and that's uh, we opened our first recording studio in Long Beach California I got an internship at Skunk Records really cool band uh, Sublime came from there and yeah, yeah su super cool scene that I was really into so um, then we moved from Long Beach that recording studio we packed up and we moved to I guess right to Hollywood. We moved to Sunset Boulevard and Vine, the cross street there, and under the 360 building on the corner, right across from Motown, we had a little recording studio on the edge, and we started recording tons and tons of bands. Uh, we started uh, doing music compilations. That was kind of our first um, understanding of the music industry as it's really hard <laughs> to... Um, to build a network, you know, a group of people that want to come and, and share your music and be, be part of it. So uh, we found a lot of other bands. Now, in Hollywood, it's a lot different than here. There's music seven nights a week and countless venues and tons and tons of bands. Some like 
10,000 or 100,000, something, some crazy, absurd amount of bands, right? Yeah. So we found a bunch of bands that would come into the recording studio, and then we'd all, we kind of called each other the Tuesday night specials, because mm-hmm. out of the 100,000 bands playing in Hollywood, they'd let us play Tuesday night special, 7 p.m., you know? Yeah. And uh, no one would come to the shows, so we just kept playing, getting really good at, at the music part, like tight, you know, and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, pretty, pretty decent at the recording at that time, and... We started the Tuesday night specials where we started a compilation where we wound up getting 10 bands to record in the studio for a compilation. Mm-hmm. We did about 15 of these compilation CDs. Right. So the way it worked, it was pretty cool. If I, am I getting too technical into no, this? This is cool? Awesome. All right, yeah. right on. So the way that we wanted to leverage our network together instead of be a Tuesday night special by ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So what we did was we charged each band 200 bucks. A hundred bucks went to cover the cost of recording studio, right? So you'd be a band, you'd come in, give me 200 bucks, I'd record a song for you. Then the other hundred bucks went into a pool to buy a CD, right? Mm -hmm. So it cost a thousand bucks to make a CD, a thousand CDs you'd get, right? Mm -hmm. So 10 bands, hundred bucks each, thousand bucks. So we'd make a thousand bucks for the studio, pay kind of a portion of the rent, Mm -hmm. right? And then the other thousand went into a, a compilation CD. So we took the the compilation CD, we put all 10 bands on it, and we put a release date on it, right? Mm-hmm. Our first one was, um, I think it was at the Lava Lounge in um, Long Beach, a historic venue, right? And every time, yeah, yeah, story time, you guys can play Tuesday, 6.30 this time, you know? Like, right. damn it! Um, so uh, we went back with 10 bands with a compilation CD, and we printed Lava Lounge and chose a release date, right? Mm-hmm. And this time we went to go book the show, and we said, here's a 1000 bucks, and we want Friday night. So they gave us Friday night for a 1000 bucks up front, right? Mm-hmm. And then all 10 of us bands went out and had 100 CDs of the compilation and gave it all away to all of our friends, right? Mm -hmm. And each person had between 10 and 30 people, 40 people show up for each band. So there's like three, 400 people that showed up to our Tuesday night special gig, right? But we moved to a Friday and we, it went like, whoa, that's how you do it in the music biz. You don't do it on your own, man. You get together. And we did this 10 or 15 times where it was like, we're playing big shows now, you know? And and everybody got to play big shows because you never knew who played at what time. So all the fans showed up and everybody got to rock out. So that that was um, like in the, that's how we got into the music business. I'm curious, like, did there there come a point where the um, recording aspect of it became more important to you than performing your own music because you you're really into the sound engineering and you created this uh, opening for other bands to record with you so did there come a point where you were more focused on the sound engineering versus performing that's it's a slippery slope there right because right. you're an artist and then you're an artist in the recording engineering you're an artist in the producing and you're an artist in the uh, playing music, you know, it's all art. So where do you put your time? So after a while there, now we're in Hollywood playing and we're playing lots and lots of shows. And, um, man, there's some funny stories, man. All right, here's one. Okay. So we really wanted to deal with Capitol records, right? So that was like, that's what we want. So we made this thing called the self-sufficient and that was in uh, recording school. You had to like do some out of the box thing to do with recording. So we made a battery powered, um, cart 
that had a miniature drum set mounted on it, guitar amps and a PA and everything. So we brought the cart and parked it in front of Capitol Records, and we played there like every day, right? Just kept playing, busking basically, but loud and right across the street with real drums, distorted guitars, you know, and just rocking out. And a couple weeks after doing that, we kind of got bored of doing it. We're like, we're not going to get a record deal doing this. It's ridiculous. But it was fun. Um, and then we're going through uh, my little brother's, all the change would be in his guitar case, right? So we open it up and flipping through money and stuff. Oh, sweet. You know, maybe we'll get some beers or something with this. And there's a card, and it's Richard Morales, senior coordinator of A&R for Capitol Records. Wow. We're like, what? It worked. But we, we, we didn't even notice that it worked. So we went up calling him up. And he became a really good friend, kept coming to tons of our shows. Uh, it was so inspirational. And, you know, after a while, he was a real fan. And we're like, so how do we get this deal, you know? How do we make it happen, go big? And he's like, well, the real honest truth is that I got to take your CD home and I got to play it to my, my little girl and my son. And if they like it, then chances are we'll be able to pitch it. The problem is my kids hate your music. <laughs> I love it. But little girls and boys aren't going to buy your music, and that's who buys music, you know? Right. So we kind of realized that, it, that, you know, the music is, is seen isn't what we thought it was. Right. So that's, yeah, go ahead. So what happened there? Uh, Richard walked by, or could he hear you from his office? And then he snuck his card into the you guitar uh, case, right? He snuck it in there. He didn't, like, announce himself. You found the card later. That's right, yeah. So he, he was never like, hey, I'm you know, the senior coordinator at A&R. He just right. dropped it in with a dollar or something walking by. Right. And uh, it's just, it's, you never notice the things happening in life unless you pay attention, right? Right. So that was, that was one of the fun little stories that we had. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, to answer your question now, so we moved uh, from Boulder, Colorado. We decided, uh, no, I'm sorry, from Los Angeles. We felt we were a little fish in a big sea. So we thought Boulder, Colorado would work out better for us. Right. So we packed up, moved there, uh, opened another recording studio, kept playing music, tons and tons of shows. And uh, then I got a job at this place, Akashic Recording Studio. Mm -hmm. uh, great experience. That's where I learned Pro Tools and digital recording and uh, really honed my skills there. And amazing experience. I mean, Eminem recorded there. Like, he did some of the 8 Mile project there. Um, I got to work with this band called Jet, this Australian rock band. And Rolling Stone magazine was there, you know, and... Uh, it, it was just, it was a blast to like learn on that high level recording. And at that time, um, a big studio, really big one. I mean, like a half a million dollars in the mic closet, you know, like everything you could ever dream of, uh, as a recording engineer, uh, the owner came up and after a little while, you know, it was like, I want to make you the, the engineer at, at the big studio in Colorado. So I became the chief engineer there and then became friends with Sony Super Audio, became a mastering engineer there, and um, really, really got to the peak. So to answer the question in a long, long way, <laughs> it's dangerous because you start playing with knobs more than drums and guitars, right? right, right. So basically, I, I got really into that. Um, now, back in Los Angeles, I'd recorded a guy, Travis, and later on, I found out that he became the singer to Blind Melon, right? Mm -hmm. So then... I'm recording and working there at the studio in Colorado and uh, Blind Melon is coming through and our manager's like, yeah, we can get you some gigs with them. And so we, we get some gigs with those guys, which were amazing, like absolutely phenomenal, like such a great experience that I've been lucky enough to have. So 
with that, we're playing music, and at the same time, Madeline's born, my daughter, right? So peak of it all, and then I go away for a little bit, come back, hold my little daughter, and it, she just is like nothing. She sees through me, like doesn't know I'm dad, and right. then I quit playing music, right. like right then and there. So I quit playing music, and then um, going back into the studio, you basically still, you go in when it's dark in the morning, come out when it's dark at night, and uh, miss the whole daughter thing there too. Mm -hmm. So I realized I really only recorded people because I wanted to record myself. Uh, so I quit recording. Right. So I became unemployable. Right. <laughs> that's what happened to Tony. Yeah, yeah. going from a uh, you know a, an industry that's two to four dollars a minute to sit there and twiddle knobs mm -hmm. to uh, Tony can't get a job at Subway. Right. So twenty thousand hours of uh, twiddling knobs doesn't help you that much in other areas. Right. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, I had a daughter named Adeline, yeah. and I was running a nightclub which was a live music venue. Yeah. And uh, after she was born, I decided to give it up. Yeah. Because just the hours are crazy. Right. And, you know, the, the atmosphere is not the best. It doesn't really mesh with the, the family side of things. So, um, but that's, that's interesting. So what instruments do you play? Well, I bang on drums right. and things. I, I'm no way like a really good drummer by any means, but I really enjoy banging on things. Right. Yeah. How do you get from sound engineer to father to running a vineyard? Well, from sound engineer to father is pretty easy. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, to running a vineyard, yeah. So what happened? We're in Boulder, Colorado. I got, what is it? Three cats, two dogs, a baby and a wife and a house mm -hmm. and no job. And just sitting there trying to figure out what the heck I'm going to do because I, I, I'd play music always, like five, six, seven, eight, all day, all, right. uh, that many hours. Um, so my dad showed up. He had just retired. Now, he was gone most of my life. When I was about eight or nine, not most of my life. My dad was around more than I remember it. You know, I've, as a little kid, you kind of distort things a little bit. So I've had a little distortion in my life. <laughs> um, but he, he definitely took off and did his career. So he was gone quite a lot, and um, I'd missed out on hanging out with my dad. So he showed up in Colorado and said, I've retired now. I'm done flying around. I'm no longer traveling, and I moved to this place called Kelowna. It's just like California. You're going to love it um, if you want to come up, and you can live in the picker shack and help me start a uh, vineyard at the time. Mm -hmm. So he gave my wife and I a vineyard management magazine and a winemaker magazine. Those are the two books, right? It was like, check it out, see if you want to do it. And, you know. So what, uh, what year is this now? Uh, 2007. 2007 is when he showed up with that idea. Right. And, I mean, Bud Light. was your uh, first reaction? Were you like, this is awesome? Or, you know, F that. I'm not doing that. Like, how did you react? Well, I wouldn't go F that. I'd go like, I'm drinking a Bud Light right now, Dad. You know? <laughs> You know, I like microbrews a lot. I, I started to get into the appreciation of different, like, IPAs and different types of, you know, hops and that sort of complex beers. But I really had no appreciation for wine at all. Mm -hmm. So when the idea came up, my wife and I were like, that's not really going to happen, you know. We'll figure it out. We'll get something else. Maybe my wife was a producer at Judge Judy show in the TV world before we'd moved, left uh, Los Angeles. So we thought maybe there'd be something in production or something like that that we could do. Um, but a couple of weeks went by and we were like, no, man, let's do this. Let's move to Canada and we're going to have this life where we'll live in the, you know, in the... 
Well, it's the Vibrant Vine now, but if anybody remembers it in 2009 or 2008, it was not what it is now, right? So, What was it called at the start? Uh, we called it uh, the Okanagan Villa was the original name, and then we branded it as Vibrant Vine. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, we had this vision that we'd, like, ring the dinner bell, you know, and the kids and the dog would come running in, and Dad would come in from the vineyard. And then we learned quickly when we got here how much work it is. Like, it's crazy the amount of work it is to farm grapes, Mm -hmm. like, on a small, like, 10 acres or less. Like, it's full-time all the time. It's the same as a recording studio, but you're out in the vines all day long, Mm -hmm. right? So that happened uh, for the first couple years we were doing that, growing grapes. And um, then we realized um, that there wasn't that much money in grape growing on a small scale, um, and that breakfast burritos in Kelowna were really expensive and I like to eat those so yeah so we needed to up the game and we decided let's make a winery out of this Um, so after doing the grape growing for a while we had some success in that we got to develop a new type of grape growing trellis and um, yeah it was great we got to go to Cornell College and got got to be friends with all these viticulture masters because I was talking the lingo and learning about um, viticulture. That was another thing, moving into the wine business. I, I didn't want to learn the way I did in audio. Like in audio, I, I worked from the ground all the way up to mastering engineer, and that took... 10 or 15 years, right? So it's a long ways to get to the top in the, in the music business. Um, so with wine, I said, I'm going to make flashcards. And my wife and I, when we were driving up, I had three, th- three or 400 flashcards just of all the words and the terminology so I would know the lingo going into it because I said, I'm going to talk to the best people and become friends with those guys, mm-hmm. not the other way around again. So... Learning the lingo, making the trellis system, getting into viticulture, then getting into the economics of it, learning that, you know, how do we climb the value chain to wine? Because those breakfast burritos, if you want to eat them every day here, (laughs) you got to sell some wine, not grapes, on a small scale. Right. Yeah. So where is your favorite uh, breakfast burrito spot in Kelowna, if you could share it? Man, I would. I hate to do this to you guys, but it went out of business. Oh, no. Yeah, it was in the mission, upstairs above the, uh, the, uh, the dental place there, which the irony of that is this guy that owns this property, the Kuipers, his brother used to own the place. Oh, I never man. even knew him, and now I have a winery on his property with him. Awesome. It's weird. All from veggie, or breakfast burritos. Yeah. Crazy. yeah. So, do you not eat them anymore, or do you have a second, second favorite spot that you're going to now, or do you Where's, just skip it? You know, I don't skip it that much. Where's the last one that I had was at the Bohemia. Right. Like that's my favorite. Like, yeah, dude, yeah. with the orange juice there, that place is insane. Yeah, I love good. that. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. Definitely an eleven dollar breakfast burrito. <laughs> So, Tony, you've got uh, real passion for learning. Obviously, when you, it seems to me when you decide to go for something, you're going to spend a lot of time and a lot of energy just mastering that skill, which is really impressive. Um, has your personality changed much? Like, if I were to go to the time machine and see you, like, 10, 15 years ago, would I be surprised? Would I, you know, have you changed much, do you think? Absolutely. Even just go back a couple, two years or just go back a little bit in time and you'll see a, um, a kid, an arrogant kid, you'll see a kid, uh, well, you'll probably see 10 or 15 Mohawks, um, <laughs> but you'll see somebody that, um, 
wasn't as grateful as I am today. Today, like, I've, I've learned a lot, and I'm much more willing to, to learn a lot more, you know? Like, I used to really think I know everything, and now I know I know so very little that the best thing that I can spend my time is with what and how questions, you know? Mm-hmm. And just keep asking questions and learning. So, yeah, if you'd go see me before, I'd walk on stage and uh, I'm God, you know. Now, right. now I'm, I'm just, I'm a guy that likes to bang on things if I'm lucky enough to get to do that. Right. And, um, you know, do the best in the wine biz that, that I can. Yeah. So what do you think uh, changed for you? Was it having Madeline or something, some event? Right. I think it'd be the the bureaucracy of the wine, and I mean that in a positive way. I'm not trying to belittle it in any way, but the the rules, hoops, and regulations to a wine wine business, an alcohol business, um, where the parameters are not like um, on a stage. There's two parameters on a stage, and that's boo or yeah. You know, that's right. it. That's all. That's it. Um, well, in the wine industry, there's a lot of do's and don'ts and those parameters are constantly moving and if you read something and say that's what it says therefore I'm right then you're in for some humbling you know mm-hmm. um, if if you read it and you look for the intent what is the intent of it regardless of what it says now I look for what was the intent behind it and I try and put myself in the person's shoes that wrote it so that I can understand it and play ball within the guide, within those parameters, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, I'd say the big thing is I put myself as much as possible in the other person's shoes. You worked at Vibra Vine. You learned everything you could about the business and about making wine. And how did you come up with the concept for this place? And how did it start? Tell us about frequency. Right on. Um, so... With Vibrant Vine, my it was mainly my dad and myself. Um, we basically got in there, figured out how to make wine and that sort of thing. And then we turned my my house, which was my dad's house before that, into the winery. And um, at that point, we started hiring people. So I'd hire everybody, and I'd mainly hire musicians. I've 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 been lucky. I didn't know it before, but I was lucky enough to do it. Where I always hired on personality. Mm-hmm. Because I believe that you could learn anything, you know. Like if I can learn it, you can learn. If I can learn how to master audio, you know, and do that stuff, then anybody can do it. Um, So, with frequency, what happened was we'd hire all these musicians at lunch every day. We'd basically jam out, play music. Everybody from lots of other wineries as well would come over, and we'd just jam at lunch, and it was super fun. Um, the drums were next to the wine barrels. You know, the oak round surfaces made the acoustic sound better. That's the reason I put the drums there. Um, you could also reach easily to the wine thief and taste, mm-hmm. you know, and sample. Uh, so throughout band practice, we found that the wine barrels next to the drums were a lot more clear than the other barrels, right? Really? Yeah, and, th- and that was just like, okay, so what does that mean? Well, these ones are more depleted than the other ones, right? But that was held in my back pocket for a while. I didn't, didn't know how significant that would be later in my life at the time. Um, then we took a trip to Haiti. My wife's, uh, da- my wife's family has an orphanage over there, and we took uh, Maddie, my daughter, and Adela, my other daughter, and my wife, and myself over there for Christmas, 
And uh, they were six and eight at the time. And we went over and, and got to experience Haiti, which is a totally different thing than Kelowna. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it's awesome, totally eye-opening. And when we got back, we wanted to help out that orphanage in some way, you know. We, so I'd been learning a bit about business and the wineries and whatnot. So we wanted to start a social enterprise that would help pay for the um, orphanage. So we started what's called the Orphan Grape. And the Orphan Grape, what we did was we took underutilized farm properties turn their existing buildings into licensed wineries. And then when we sold the wine, we'd pay the farmer a portion of that, the landowning farmer, and we'd pay the orphanage a portion of that and then some to the business. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to make like this kind of like um, this, this business that would kind of fund the orphanage but also help farmers so that they too could have breakfast burritos, right? right. So we started Frequency. Um, when we opened, we opened Cahoots, um, which became a cidery. It was a winery in the beginning, and then frequency. And my partner, my business partner, and I, uh, we had gotten through all that bureaucracy of opening a winery, license, the insurance, the you know, all the stuff that goes into it is is an eye opening experience. And right before opening, my partner goes to me. He goes, "Well, what are you going to call this one?" And I'm like, uh, "I don't know, man." Uh, last time it was like, "I don't know." We'll slap my brother's art on it and call it Vibrant Vine. You know, boom, because we'd always used his art for the CDs that we made. So now I'm making wine. Let's just put his art on the, you know, and that's that. Um, so he goes, "Well, what are you going to call this?" And I, I don't know. And he says, "Well, it should do something with sound, dude. That's like your background." I'm like, Awesome. Yeah, let's do it with sound. So eventually the name Frequency came out. Uh, some Googling happened, and we learned about collodny plates and how sound frequencies can actually move matter around, right? right, and cluster it together. And that that's when those jam sessions at Vibrant Vine really paid off at that moment. It was like, whoa, that means the drums were doing these vibrations to the wine, making the wine clear that we would drink during band practice, um, there's something there. Right. So that's when we said the first one, the first Orphan Grape, it's called Frequency. So we Googled this stuff up. We found a Kolodny plate online and a how-to. Uh, my, my neighbor, uh, old man Gary, and I drilled a hole in his, in his beer cooler, put a plate on it, you know, and a speaker, and, and played some frequencies and some margarita salt, and boom, it, it made, the, um, it made this, this pattern. And we're like, it works. It's amazing. <laughs> so that's how we started uh, Frequency. Tell us a little bit about that. Is it, um, it, it clears sediment and it changes the molecular pattern. Does it do anything to the taste or the, the texture, anything to the wine itself? So that's when we got to the point where, okay, we've got a brand, we've got a story, we've got a business, let's open shop, right? And we do it and it's somewhat of a novelty. You come in, dopamine's released in your brain because you see something happen and then the next thing you think, oh my gosh, that was good. The next thing that happens is going to be good, right? It's a novelty. That's what it does to you. So um, at that point it was like, okay, so now what are we going to do? You know, what's the next part that's good? And we really wanted a recording studio. So uh, how do you make that happen? So with these sound, with these sound moving sound around and clustering matter, it did allow us to do two things that were neat, right? One was clustering matter. It basically takes all the sediment in the wine, clusters it together, falls to the bottom, becomes clear faster than if you didn't play sound to it, right? So we can make wine faster with adding less stuff. That's pretty cool. The next thing was there's this thing called bottle shock. Bottle shocks, when you put the wine through the filter and into your bottle and put a cap on it, there's this oulage. I'll say that wrong. Yeah, the, the space in between the cork and the wine at the top. 
And uh, bottle shock is when the CO2 and oxygen and stuff hasn't settled in the wine. So why it takes so long is because, and you just Google this, this is how I did it, um, it the wine uh, expands and contracts when temperature uh, gets colder and hotter, right? right? So that's forcing CO2 into the wine and out of the wine and air in and out and nitrogen and balances everything, right? And the earth vibrates. So those three things, temperature changing and expansion, contraction, and vibration, make um, a bottle shock go away. Well, if you play sound to it, you can do it much faster, right? Oh, cool. Yeah, so learn that, learn that, and that, you know, I learned that actually from a friend that taught me how to pass a VQA test. So he said, I said, dude, I just finished bottling my wine, everything's fine, all the levels are great, but it doesn't taste good. And he's like, oh, it's in bottle shock. I said, well, what do I do? And he said, well, if it's just for the test, take a bottle, toss it on the back of your fridge up on top, and uh, tomorrow morning open it, it'll be fine. What? Okay. Put it on there. The fridge, when the, when it, uh, the condenser turns on, it vibrates the right. fridge, and then it kicks heat out the back. It expands it, and then the, it shuts off, stops vibrating, it contracts, cold. And it does it, so it's like fast-forwarding time. Right? So it was nothing revolutionary. It was just like, that's awesome. Let's do it. Right? Yeah. So that was with the winemaking. Um, and that, that um, you know, was cool. That's, that's that. But it's not going to change the world. And I want to change the freaking world. Right? So a recording studio could help. How do I get that? That's my main focus is I want a recording studio in the winery because then I could hang out in a recording studio in the winery. Right? Like we are right now. So... We Google a little bit more about sound, and we find this guy, Dr. Emoto. Now, Dr. Emoto is probably one of the most amazing people I've ever stumbled across, ever. I, I've never had the privilege of meeting the guy. He passed away two years ago, but he spent 30 years of his life studying vibration, sound, and frequency on water, right? So he did three basic tests, and these are the tests that led to frequency getting a, a recording studio. <laughs> so his first test was he played heavy metal music to water in a controlled environment, then froze it and took a picture with a microscope of the crystallization, okay? He did the heavy metal, and he got this distorted-looking kind of um, crystal, and it even had the colors of black and gold in it, right? It's kind of scary-looking thing, like whatever. And then he did uh, classical music to water in a controlled environment, froze it, took a picture under a microscope, and got a, like a hallmark picture of a snowflake. Wow. Perfect. Blue and white. Gold and black, heavy metal, blue and white, distorted, broken-looking heavy metal, beautiful, symmetrical... Uh, Classical. So light bulb goes on. Dude, we're going to have a recording studio. But oh, we can only play classical music in there. That's going to blow, you know? Not that I don't like classical. I love it. But I also like a little bit of ump to it, you know? So uh, beautiful thing comes up next is his next test. So his next test, he says, is it the intention or the vibration? So he takes a water sample. And he looks at it, and he says bad words to it. I hate you. You are not worthy. You suck. I don't think he said suck. I added that one. <laughs> but you can Google exactly what he said. Right. Uh, froze it and got that gold, black, distorted-looking crystal, right? And then he does, I love you. You are worthy. Hallelujah. Right. Freezes it. Perfect crystal again, right? Huh. So it's like, whoa. Is it the intention or is it the sound, right? right. So hate bad, that sort of stuff is sharp and distor distortive, right? right? So is it distortion, making it distort? Whereas 
hallelujah, there's harmonics, you know, and, yeah. and is that creating um, the, the shaping of the matter just like we do on the Claudine plates? So we're, de- we're back to like, uh, I guess it has to be like pretty like positive, good music for it to work. Then comes his third test. His third test is he doesn't say a thing to the water. He writes on it and feels it. So he feels, I hate you, you're not worthy, you're terrible, right? Writes mm-hmm. that on that, freezes it, same thing. Wow. Terrible looking crystal. Oh, and Google it, man. Like, don't trust me. Google it. I don't trust anything. I just Google everything. Uh, so you see this dirty, bad looking crystal, the same as heavy metal, but just felt it and wrote it, right? Mm-hmm. Then he wrote and felt, I love you, you are worthy, joy. No words. Beautiful crystal again, right? Light bulbs go on. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like playing drums. When I'm in the studio and I'm paying two, three, four, five bucks a minute, right, to be recorded, I'm thinking like drum, play like a machine, I should sound like an Apple computer, you know. Um, but when I'm playing without on stage and I'm not paying to play, I'm doing stuff that I have no idea what's happening with my hands. Like, I don't know how I do that stuff. I don't even know what I'm doing. But I'm in this, this moment. It happens after about two or three minutes of five or ten minutes of playing music, you get into this, like, meditative state where you're just, like, so stoked and things are happening that you don't know. If you think about it, you'll crash, and, it'll, you know, you'll bail. It won't work. Right. So with this Dr. Emoto and the want for a recording studio, we figured it out. We said, if you're playing music and you're in that meditative state, you are grateful. You are in a positive vibe, and your vibration is more important than the sound of the music, according to Dr. Emoto's. So when I'm paying to record, I have a negative vibe because I'm trying to be an Apple computer, right? right? But when I'm not paying to record, I'm grateful, Mm -hmm. and I'm stoked, and my vibration is awesome. Therefore, it can be Slayer or it can be <laughs> maybe not Slayer. That would be a test, right? I'd right, love to right. find that out. But it can be grungy music or it can be classical. So we made a recording studio and we said it's free. So they book online. You book your time in here, you know, state-of-the-art, whatever recording studio. Here. Right here, right yeah. now. You book it online, it's free. You come and record. Uh, in the past two years, well, year and a half, we recorded over 400 bands in this room you're sitting Amazing. in. Yeah, drums, everything in here. Mm-hmm. And uh, we shoot a video for them. We've had something like a million views on our, you know, we make a video, post it and everything. So what we did was we made a space where you can come in, record for free, and your positive vibration is going out into that wine all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a wine here called um, the Grateful Vine. And what that is is a list of about a 1,000 people that have helped me start wineries and and do what I'm doing, right? Mm -hmm. So we write on there and we tell people about gratitude and how the vibrations work. And when you do that story, you can feel it, man. I swear, you can feel it. Because no matter what, if you don't believe in it, if you humbug it, whatever... Deep down inside, you're feeling like, well, actually, I'm really grateful for that one time my dad. I hate my dad, but that one time he really helped me, you know? And that feeling of gratitude, man, that vibration goes out. So it goes into the wine, and wine is nothing more than a story in a bottle. So when you take that bottle out of our location, that's why we don't really sell it in stores, is you take it from here, and you go tell that story, that vibration of gratitude is going out. So this is a super cool room. Um, you've got some, some of these bottles are upside down and some are hanging from the ceiling. Is there a reason? 
the truth on that one was the corks in the bottles. Right. So we wanted to keep the corks wet. So right. we made the original racks upside down. And then we looked up at the ceiling and said, well, you know, we could put some more wine if we hung them from the wine. So we now have like 500 bottles hanging from the, from the ceiling the other way around. And they, you know, when you come in here and do a tasting, you pick your wine. Right. So quite often people are picking from the roof. Like yeah. the wine rotates in here pretty often. This amazing equipment here, I'm guessing you don't let people start playing with it. Like you're doing the recording, you're doing the engineering, or do you just say, have at her, give them the keys and you leave? How does it work? We're pretty fine with either, you know, as long yeah. as people are respectful. But we always have an engineer in here. Like it's, you know, we... we uh, we have an engineer here all the time. Uh, you book your time, come in. If you want to be involved in the mix or in grabbing some knobs and twisting some faders, whatever, it's no problem. Like, right. have at it, man. You're not going to break it. If I can't break it, I doubt you can. Right. <laughs> Very cool. So um, tell us about the type of people you like to work with in the sound studio. Um, what makes it fun for you? I really like uh, people, musicians, I like... I like the same as I like people. Like the people I like don't have that many expectations. I find if you have expectations of any sort, then you, you, it's hard to meet those expectations, right? Mm -hmm. So when people come in out of the blue, like my favorite sessions are, say somebody's in the tasting room right now, right? Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh, you play music. Oh, sweet. Hey, what do you play? And they're like, oh, guitar. I go, dude, here's a guitar. Hop in. Let's do it. And they're, they're blindsided. They're like, what? And they, they just start playing. We toss the camera on or whatever. And, and we just do it. And there's no expectation. You know, they walked into a winery. Maybe they expected to taste some wine, but they certainly didn't expect to record music and make a music video, right? right. So that's my favorite is the spot, spot, like spontaneous. Is it permissible to have children, like school kids, music stu students, or do you have to be 19 to come in? We have a waiver, and yeah. you just got to have an adult with you all the time. That's the winery rules. Right. And we really want to make sure that the adult's cool with the kid being around wine, because we're not trying to, like... I mean, we're not even selling wine. We're selling the, the feeling that you get from the experience you have while purchasing wine, right? right. So um, we just, we make sure that the, we've had, we've had this amazing Shaughnessy Rose. Oh my gosh, this girl was phenomenal. She sung and it was just every hair on your body would stand up like, <laughs> wow. Wonderful. And she was 15, you know? So her dad came in, signs the waiver, and she's done three or four videos here now. Uh, she's just amazing. So, yeah, we have young people all the time. Tell us a little bit more about the wine business. I'm going to let you go because uh, it's a fascinating conversation. I can ask you questions all day, but I'm sure you've got other things booked. Um, so tell us a little bit about the wine business. It's uh, I know it's super competitive. You touched on it. You've got a lot of rules and inspections and competition that you're facing from British Columbia and California and so forth. So... Um, what is one piece of advice you would give to someone just starting out in the wine business? One piece of advice would be don't sell wine. That's the key. If you're selling wine, you're in trouble, man. Right. Yeah. Find something else that you're really passionate about and sell that because there, there are those out there that are selling wine. And when you talk about wine, like, I mean, by accident, right? Accidentally, accidentally, I won the 
world wine competition in Geneva, Switzerland. Wow. 10,000 blind double taste testing, right? 10,000 entries. And I got double platinum best white wine in the world. Wow. Okay? Which one? Uh, oops, 2012. Right. So the point is, is for, do you think I could ever win that again? No. Did I ever mean to win that? No. Like, it just happens, you know? So if you're trying to win the best wine in the world, I really doubt you ever will, right? So... If you're competing on a wine being better than that wine, it's not about that. You're missing the right. You're missing the, the part of the story that's important. Mm-hmm. The the part of the story is how that wine makes somebody feel. Now we make A plus wines. Just Google how to make wine A plus, literally, and you can do it. Right. You know, it'll say what to do, and then you follow the recipe, and you can make an amazing wine. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's how that wine makes you feel. So if you're out there trying to sell wine. That is the best wine in the world. Too bad, sucker, because right. I already got it. Right. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That was so unhumble of me. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like um, if I could summarize what you said, uh, your intentions really matter. And uh, spirit of gratitude really, really matters for your joy of doing it and also the quality of the, the product that comes out seems like it's really affected by the spirit of gratitude that, that you put into it. Is that, uh, is that fair? It's more than, that's spot on. I mean, if you're not grateful for it, then, you know, you're missing the point. Right. That's the whole point, because that's the best vibration you can get. When you're grateful, like, this, is, I used to have a fear of flying, mm-hmm. like the bumps would freak me out. Yeah. Now I've just got this trick. All I do is think of something that I'm really grateful for, and you can't be fearful, and you can't be angry. It's impossible. Right. If you're grateful, if you feel for something that you're truly, honestly grateful for, you can't be afraid and you can't be angry. So gratitude is is the key. I want to put you on the spot just a little bit. Um, Could you name one person in Kelowna that you think is a fascinating person and you would love to see come on this show in the future? Robert Fine's story. Yeah, he is an amazing person and, and I bet his story on this type of interview would be phenomenal. If there was somebody that, he's like a yes, you know? Mm-hmm. Just yes. That's what, to me, he's been such an inspiration from right. since I've moved to Kelowna. Like, it just seems like, of course you can. Now go do it. Right. You know, that attitude. And that's so rare. Yeah. So rare. Well, uh, Tony, I'm very grateful for your time today. Um, I feel like we got to know you a little better on a personal level. And I got to know a little bit about the uh, wine business and this amazing spot you've got here at frequency vineyard and um i wish you all the best thank you for your time thank you so much and you know i really i just i really mean thank you to you and at frequency here without these guys like without the team here there is no frequency right so it's like really thank you guys yeah. Um, last question. Do you have a website or what is the best way to, for people to find out more about Frequency? Just come up here or? Yeah, just Google Frequency Winery. Okay. And, and don't look at the one in California. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Tony.